I'll read one of the sections that has anchored my Christian life for many years and is one of my favorite passages from Scripture, 2 Timothy 3. I'm going to begin in verse 10 and read through verse 17. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Well, I want to begin this morning by asking you to remember something. I want you to remember when you were saved, when conversion took place in your heart and in your life whether you experienced something that was definite in terms of a 180 where you turned from the world to Christ in a dramatic fashion, or whether you came to just realize that you were a believer and God had done something in you. Whatever your testimony, I want you just to recount something. I want you to recount and perhaps acknowledge in your own heart that at some point, no matter how you circumstantially came to faith in Christ, the word of God participated in your conversion. The Bible says in Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. So somehow, whether it was a sermon you heard on the radio or at church or on TV, or it was you reading the word of God for yourself or hearing it in a Bible study or vacation Bible school or Awana or however you heard the word, whether your parents at bedside where it was, they were teaching you the Bible or, or in a heartfelt conversation with you on your knees where you heard the word of God and came to faith in Christ. The word of God was active and actually is the seed as First Peter talks about the imperishable seed, which is called the word of God. That seed went into you And the Holy Spirit took that seed and germinated it and illumined your mind to say, I want to become a Christian. I believe. And the word of God had everything to do with your conversion. And I want to show you from scripture that scripture is the powerful, sufficient, saving seed that transforms life. It gives life when you're saved and it transforms you throughout life. The word of God opened something up to you. It showed you Jesus. The word of God showed you something more beautiful than what the world had to offer. 
The word of, word of God showed you that Christ is more satisfying than the lust of the flesh. The word of God showed you how you could get rid of the guilt and shame of your sin. The word of God made the cross significant to you. It made that more than a symbol, but a reality where you see that and think, I'm saved because of the grace that was found at the cross. The word of God, it, it showed you that you could be friends with believers. It, it gives you encouragement. It gives you hope, right? But it probably, at the same time, was not long before your journey in the word of God was showing you something else. Because the word of God shows you a tremendous upside, incomparable riches that are found in Christ, but the word of God also shows you something very dark. It shows you basically the dark underbelly of our world. It shows you that there are real tragedies that are happening because of the effects of sin in our world. There's murder, there's there's rape, there's adultery, there's sin. There are things that happen to us that the word of God is explaining why they are happening because sinful hearts are at large. It doesn't stop with the other people's sin though. The word of God also diagnoses your own sin, does it not? And shows you the depths of it and the offense that our sin is to a holy God. The word of God basically shines a mirror or reflects a mirror image back to ourselves where we can become pretty discouraged and circle the drain over how sinful we really are. And the word of God also shows that persecutions are coming to a Christian. That's actually what Paul is doing here. He's, he's apostolically speaking and he's, he's writing to his son in the faith and saying things are going to go from bad to worse. And the word of God promises that we will be persecuted as Christians. The Word of God, it, it really does give us some very hard realities about becoming a Christian. It says that you'll be persecuted, you'll be doubted, people will attack you, people will say harsh things to you. This happens to me, I know that it happens to you, and it's not just because we're here in a sin-cursed world, but as a person who's trying to live a godly life, we are very vulnerable to people's attacks. And we've gone through those things. The Word of God, it tells a story about people who are suffering in a world where we know for some of the reasons why people are suffering, but, you know, when people get cancer, when bad things happen to people, um, tragedies that seem unresolvable, the Word of God explains and gives us some resolution, but it basically doesn't tell us why everything is happening, but that is happening and that God has a plan behind it. So the Word of God is a powerful book. It's a narrative about a tremendous upside, and it's also a narrative about the fact that things are happening that are very difficult to face. And what Paul is doing here in this section is he is calling Timothy to persevere through a very difficult circumstance. I've just read to you about how Paul is talking about his testimony of suffering and, and going through persecution. And it actually says in verse 11 that the Lord rescued him or delivered him through all of those. And what he meant is he's delivered from death. And I mean, he literally in Lystra was stoned and left for dead, but God kind of kept him going and he was delivered from death even through stoning. But this time, Paul is saying to Timothy, it's not gonna turn out that way for Paul. Paul's going to die. He's written in the next chapter his last will and testament, and he's saying, you know, 
my life is not going to be very long. And, and Timothy, I'm leaving you here alone to lead the church. You are going to be the key leader of the local church movement now. In fact, if, if you look at verses, uh, you know, if you look at verses 1 through 9, we kind of been over that. You know, there are false teachers, and Paul is talking about false teachers that are pervasive in the local church. We've been talking about false doctrine. And literally, he's saying in the last days, times are going to be difficult. People are going to be lovers of self. Verse 3, they're heartless. Verse 4, they're reckless, swollen with conceit. They're hypocrites, verse 5 and verse 6. They're like mercenaries that come into the church, that creep in, that want to destroy the church from the inside out. So Timothy, you're supposed to be a soldier that fights a good fight of faith, and guess what? I'm about to die, and there's a bunch of people in the church that will come against you. And so Paul, after basically talking Timothy out of staying in the ministry... <laughs> I mean, he's giving a million reasons to hang it up, hang up your cleats, leave the ministry, leave the church, leave the pastorate. Paul turns everything on its head by saying there is still yet one thing that you can cling to, one solution, one answer to keep you going in the Christian life. Now look at this in verse 14. He said, but as for you, continue in what you have learned. That word continue there is the Greek word minnow, which means to abide. You remember Jesus teaching on the vine and the branches, and he says, you're a branch, abide in the vine. And where he says in 1 John, you need to abide in the sun, 1 John 2, 24 or 21. Basically, Paul's saying to Timothy, you have to continue. And he's saying, Timothy, even though you're going to face a tremendous load here, you're going to have a tremendous burden as the premier church pastor and leader of the local church movement that I'm leaving to you. I'm bequeathing this heavy mantle on your shoulders. Even though life is about to get really hard and ramp up, you can't quit. There, I'm going to give you the one reason that dominates all the difficulty and, and reflects my apostolic, fatherly, authoritative word to you, Timothy. There's one reason that you cannot quit, and it's simply this. You've got this. You've got the word of God. And I'm going to tell you something. This is very practical for you because I know that you are facing very difficult things in your life and you have your own personal narrative. You have your own set of circumstances. You have your own trial. I know of some of these things. I know some of these things that you're going to face this week that I'm praying for some of you about. And I want to tell you, it's the same lesson that was given to Timothy is given to you. And Paul gave this lesson to his son in the faith, whom he loved dearly and was pulling at the heartstrings of Timothy to say, listen, I want you to know I'm going to leave you. I'm about to die. It's, it's over for me here in this world, but I'm leaving you with confidence that this scripture will get you through. That the word of God is more powerful than how dark this world is. The Bible trumps difficult circumstances. That's what Paul is trying to prove out for Timothy so that Timothy will keep going. So that Timothy won't quit. You ever wanted to quit? You ever wanted to hang it up like an athlete? I'll hang up my cleats. I'm done. I'm, I'm turning you know, my badge back in. I'm walking away. You just want to walk away? Well, the Bible says that it's powerful enough for you to keep going. That's what the word of God is it's God-breathed, and it is 
powerful. Here's my question for you. Will you this morning believe what the Bible claims itself to be? Will you take God's word as God's word? Because as one preacher put it, the word of God is either God-breathed and inspired or it's not. It's pretty simple. But you either take it as God's word, all of it as God's word, inspired, powerful for your life, or you just dismiss it altogether. It's not mostly inspired. It's either God's word or it's not. And that's what Timothy is proving out here for Christians. I mean, that's really the inspiration of Scripture and the conviction that this is the Word of God is what separates you from all other religions. You have a God-breathed, God-inspired book where you have access to the mind of God and the direction of God for your life and you have everything that you need for life and godliness, Second Peter chapter 1. It's the Word of the living God. So for the header of our outline, here's three keys for not giving up. Paul is giving Timothy three keys for not giving up and all of these three points point to scripture the first is believing scripture is sufficient to save how how can we be confident that people can come to faith in christ well we have god's word god's word is the key that unlocks the door in people's hearts for people to be saved and to give us a running start i want to start back up in Verse 10, Paul is affirming here that the scripture has been vitally connected to Timothy at conversion and through his maturation as a Christian. It's sufficient to save. And he's building a context here in verse 10 of Paul's relationship to Timothy. Paul was a mentor. Paul was an evangelist. I don't know if Paul directly influenced Timothy to be saved, but he called Paul, I mean, Paul called Timothy his son in the faith. Have you heard that? He called him his son in the faith. And he's saying in verse 10, look, you followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. You, my persecutions and sufferings. And he's trying to connect with Timothy and say, listen, when I met you, which was perhaps in Timothy's late teens, you became a believer. And as a believer throughout your spiritual life, you have followed me. So Paul's building the case that, listen, I've been with you a long time and you have followed the teachings and like a son follows in footprints in the snow left by a father, you have been following after me all along the way. He gives nine sort of uh, explanations of his ministry, all with um, the pronoun my, my teaching, my conduct, my aim. And he goes on. In verse 11, he talks about his persecutions. And I want you to notice something in verse 11. My persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra. Why is he pointing those out? He's pointing these out to Timothy for a very real reason. And that is that Timothy is from Lystra. We're going to look back in Acts 14 just to build some of the historical context here. But Paul is making the point to Timothy that Timothy actually was an eyewitness of when Paul was persecuted for the faith. Here, turn back to Acts 15. I want to show this to you. Acts chapter 14. 
It's a very interesting story because Paul was on his second missionary journey and he was with Barnabas at that time and he was in Iconium and Lystra and he was, if you want a, a little bit of a, you know, a, a briefing on where Lystra is, you don't have to turn to the back of your Bible maps to find that. It's modern day Turkey. It's kind of smack dab in the middle. It's a Gulf town on the Mediterranean Sea in between Greece and then you have uh, Antioch on the other side, which is above Jerusalem. And so it's sort of halfway to Greece is where Lystra is. And it's a Gulf town. It's a coastal town. And that's where Timothy was raised in a Greco-Roman culture with a father who was a Greek and probably a pagan worshiper and a mother who was a Jewish believer and a grandmother. Who, and they were giving him the word of God as a child and, and in that area. And so you have Paul and Barnabas who come to town. They're preaching the gospel. And Acts 14 talks about in verse 8, how they were healing people and Paul saw someone who was crippled from birth and actually saw that this man had faith in Christ in verse 10 he says stand up right on your feet and so as this man got healed and as they taught the crowd swelled around Paul and Barnabas and as they swelled around him they were actually instead of having faith in Christ they were honoring and beginning to fall down and worship Paul and Barnabas. And they were calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes. And they were bringing animal sacrifices to them. And Paul and Barnabas were freaked out so much that they said, hey, you can't do that. And they ripped their clothes and they sort of tried to get away. Remember how I talked about how you always have these mercenaries within the church trying to snuff out um, Christianity? Well, there were Jews from Antioch that were actually following and stalking Paul and Barnabas. And they showed up from Iconium and, and from Antioch and they showed up and they went down into Lystra and they stirred the crowds up where they were worshiping Paul and Barnabas and then they got the crowds to turn against Paul and literally verse 19 says, they persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city supposing that he was dead. So they stoned him to near death. So why does Paul bring all of this up? Paul is in essence, um, you know, back in first, second Timothy three, he's in essence going back in time in Timothy's mind to say, listen, I've been friends with you a long time. I mean, this occasion happened when Timothy was a teenager, late teens. And he's basically saying, you, you remember what happened to me at Lystra. You were probably there. You knew the crowds that swelled around me where I was stoned and persecuted near to death. You understand these things, and I want you to know that you can stick it out. You can survive ministry like I did as well. That's what he's doing. So he's reaching back into Timothy's heart. Timothy's in his mid-30s, and he's saying, look, as a teenager, you saw that suffering. And actually, I want to make the case, if you turn to Acts 16, that from Paul's ministry and his influence where he was building up the church in Lystra at that time, from that influence, Timothy got saved. I don't know if Paul directly led him to Christ. I mean, he calls him his son in the faith all through the New Testament. We don't know that or not, whether that's true or not, but Paul comes back through Lystra. Paul comes back through Lystra in Acts 16 with Silas this time on his third missionary journey. And look what it says about Timothy. It says, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. You know what that means? 
That means that Timothy had become a believer and he was a commendable believer where the brothers in the church, they were affirming Timothy and Paul said, well, you know what? I remember you or, or I'm getting to know you through the church and you're gonna come on the mission field with me. That's what Paul did. So he conscripted him right into the mission field at that point in the third missionary journey. So what is Paul doing? He, again, back to 2 Timothy chapter 3. He's basically pulling at the heartstrings of Timothy saying, look, you can do it. You can keep going because I'm going back in time and, and getting you to recount your spiritual heritage, your origin. And then he goes even further back. And look at this in verse 14. Again, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing, look at this, from whom you learned it. Who's the whom here? This is plural. Paul's talking about, I think, three different people. He's talking about himself. He's saying, look, continue, keep going in what you've learned, and remember that I taught you as a mentor in your teens and then in his early 20s when he grabbed him onto the mission field. You've been with me for 15 years, brother. Keep going. I've invested. And then he reaches farther back into Timothy's life and says, you were also trained by some other people, your family. Look at verse 15. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. I want you to note the word childhood. Again, it's like watching a movie. Paul is basically saying, look, we're at this significant point in time where I'm getting ready to die and you're getting ready to take over. And I want you in your mind to time warp back all the way to when you were five years old. That's what childhood means here. Infancy or being a newborn. It's talking about the early years in your life. And he's saying, listen, Timothy, even when you were first able to learn, you had parents investing the word of God into your heart. From childhood, from infancy, what he's pointing out here and it, it really is a good place for us to pull over and just say listen do we know how significant family worship is in the home every time we sow the seed of the word of God we're doing this work um, the stage was being set in Timothy's life to be this leader to be this man of God why because the parents not the father the father was sort of this Greek guy who was who was worshiping in pagan idolatry, he was a Gentile, it says, but you had the mother and you had grandma. You had grandma who's Lois and Eunice who's Ma. So grandma and Ma are sowing the seed into the heart of Timothy. And Timothy's just having the stage set for him to be converted later on. So that by 22 years of age or so, early 20s, Paul said, you're the premier disciple that I'm gonna give the ministry over to. That all started, that originated back in the parenting of grandma and ma who were these faithful teachers. From childhood, Timothy was acquainted with sacred, the sacred writings. The sacred writings um, here speaks to the Old Testament, Genesis to Malachi which this is not cold doctrinal teaching where, you know, they're sitting there with Timothy saying, listen, if you don't memorize, you're going to get an F on your paper. This is, this is the idea of 
the mother and the grandmother passing their very hearts on to Timothy. If you look um, back at chapter 1, verse 5 of 2 Timothy, it says that Paul is saying to Timothy, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. Paul is saying to Timothy here early in this book, listen, you had a sincere faith that was given to you. What does that mean? It means that through the discipling of the word of God into the life of Timothy, there was also a heart that was passed on behind that message that transformed Timothy's life. So when we disciple our kids, listen, we're not just working through a curriculum. We're not just getting them to bring the word of God into their minds through rote memory. We are supposed to shepherd our children's hearts. You say, well, it's too late for me. I didn't do that work. Well, do it now in the church. That's why many of you sign up for Awana and children's ministry. It's so that you can be the family of God, spiritual parents to these kids and invest seed sowing ministry into the lives of children. So from childhood, the Mishnah says that that begins in Jewish culture and heritage at five years of age to prepare them so that by age 12, they can be bar mitzvahed and affirmed as young adults, knowing the word of God. Being acquainted means to intimately know the law and the prophets, the sacred writings, which by the way, the Old Testament is not a second class part of the Bible. Let me just say this, the 39 books of the Old Testament are to be preached as the New Testament is to be preached. And the reason is, is all scriptures profitable. And I just want to say all scripture points to Jesus and the investment of the Old Testament done in a warm hearted way is the investment that points to Christ. Just as Hebrews 11 says that Moses, he, he saw a future reward that would come through the Messiah in 1 Peter chapter 1, 10 and 13, talks about the prophets who were preaching about a Jesus that they didn't fully understand. I mean, that is the dynamic where you're preaching Christ from the Old Testament. This whole book is a Christian book. And so... Lois and Eunice, I believe, had a sincere faith with as much revelation as they knew as, as Jewish believers who had a sincere faith that, just like the disciples of John the Baptist, remember how they believed everything about the coming Messiah and they were baptized and then they needed to be filled in later on about the fact that Jesus had come and then they believed the gospel, the full gospel. I think Lois and Eunice were the same kind of people, like Apollos, who, who knew everything up to the Messiah was coming, and then the Messiah had come, and, and Priscilla and Aquila filled Apollos in, and then he fully embraced the gospel. I think Lois and Eunice are the same thing, where they were warm-hearted believers passing on their faith to Timothy. That's the dynamic that we need to have in our homes as well. So how does this work? Uh, the conditions are set by the investment of scripture. You see this in verse 15, which are able to make you wise for salvation. So the investment's made and then the conditions are set. What do I mean by being made wise? I just want to just sort of clarify this. When you are leading someone to Christ, you're sowing seed and you're relying upon the Holy Spirit to do the work. Have you ever Try to lead somebody to Christ that just seems very resistant. It's like they're just going, yeah, 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 thank you for that. Thank you, but no thank you. And then all of a sudden, 
Something happens in the heart of that person where they go, oh, wait, I see it. I do believe in Jesus. Well, that's because the Holy Spirit grabs a hold of that seed and transforms a person's life from the inside. It's nothing we can do from the outside. We can't make somebody become a Christian, but the Holy Spirit will illumine someone. Literally, that's making a person wise to salvation, and that's what happened in Timothy's heart. And it's always through faith in Christ Jesus. Do you see that phrase at the end of verse 15? Through faith. It's always through faith in Christ Jesus. A person hears the word of God, faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ, and then what they're doing is as the Holy Spirit is illumining and awakening a person to believe in the scripture that's inside of them, that's been invested in them, then they are exercising faith in Christ Jesus simultaneously, and they're saved. All we might see is somebody saying, you know what? I'm believing. I'm believing in Jesus now. I don't know why, but I am. I'm convinced, but behind the scenes, the Holy Spirit has awakened someone from the inside out to believe in Christ. It's always through faith. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's always through faith. So, Timothy's conversion was owed to Scripture. I just want to point this out the investment timothy was raised in scripture timothy's conversion was owed to scripture his blind eyes were opened and christ was revealed to him it's all owed to scripture i mean timothy could say okay thank you and again we're talking about origins thank you paul for mentoring me that was wonderful thank you for being a model of suffering yes i do remember when you were stoned in lystra um, nearly you know left for dead you nearly died the lord delivered you thank you for that thank you for pointing out that my grandma and my ma raised me in scripture thank you for pointing out uh, the origin of when i was saved i mean that's what Paul was doing. He's pointing out origins. But I want to just tell you something. Paul did not stop there. It wasn't just Paul pointing out Timothy's history and testimony that was going to set Paul up to continue on. I mean, if we stopped there, we'd all give up. You know, yes, I remember I was raised in the scripture. I remember I did backyard Bible clubs. I remember I went to Sunday school. I remember we were in the church every time the doors were open. I remember, I remember, remember this Bible class. I remember this mentor. I mean, those things are great, right? And Paul is pointing out friends and family and pulling at the heartstrings and pulling out the roots of Timothy's spiritual life to say, listen, I'm about to die and you've got to keep going on. You've got to persevere. But that wasn't enough. It's never enough. Listen, life, I want to tell you something. Life is far too discouraging for you to just try to base your continuance on your history, to ride the coattails of, of your testimony and maybe that you had faithful parents or, or a faithful mentor. It's, there's too much hardship in life to guarantee your continuance if you're just looking at your past to try to motivate you for the future. It's not enough. Life is too discouraging. I'm telling you, I have had a, a discouraging conversation already today, this morning, okay? I, it happens. You'll have one this afternoon. Something will happen to you tonight, this week, that could just totally just send you off the rails where you're saying, I want to hang it up. Well, there's one reason, my friend, one reason to keep going in the Christian life, and that's because we've got a sacred, powerful book. I want to talk about this now. We've got a few minutes left. Verse 16. We've been talking about origins. We've been talking about 
Timothy being raised in scripture, his conversion being owed to scripture. Now let's talk about believing the scripture is sufficient to save, but sufficient to transform. And that is beginning with verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God. All scripture, posgrafe, all scripture. This word grafe is used 70 some times in the New Testament. It's specifically used 30 times in the singular um, form, grafe, scripture. It's like talking about it as a unit, all scripture. This is God's spoken, inerrant, authoritative, inspired canon. All scripture encompasses all of it. Now, you could answer on a test question, you know, what is Paul referencing here as all scripture? And you could say, well, because the New Testament wasn't completed yet, it was being written at this time, you could say the Old Testament is what Paul is talking about. All scripture, Genesis to Malachi, right? All scripture. And you, you know, you could get test question right, you know, correct on that. But I want to take you one level deeper because Paul was writing scripture as an apostle. And I think Paul knew that the writings that he was giving and producing were also sacred scripture. And Peter affirms this of Paul. We're going to see this in a few moments. And the writings that were chronicling the ministry and teaching of Jesus Christ, that was scripture also. And so Paul is affirming all of the corpus of scripture with a statement like this. There are times in the Bible, by the way, where um, the Bible says the scripture speaks and it's literally personifying the scripture as God's voice. So we're talking about God's voice that's given to us, all scripture that speaks. Look at this. It's all scripture. Now, I just one reference here, one cross-reference to get us started. 1 Thessalonians 2.13. This is why I believe Paul is talking about all scripture being not just the Old Testament, but also the New Testament writings. And we also thank God constantly for this. This is Paul recounting his experience with the Thessalonians. He says that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God which is at work in you believers. So when Paul came to town and he spoke to them under apostolic authority and that word was written down making the epistles of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, he knew that that was scripture. The scripture, it's the word of God. And Peter knew this as well if you were to turn over to 2nd Peter 3:15 and 16. At the end of 2nd Peter, Peter is you know, in a collegial way, talking about Paul. I love this, as he's just talking about things that Paul wrote. Verse 15, he says, um, And our brother, our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, he's talking about the illumination and the inspiration of Scripture, as he does in all his letters, when he speaks of them, of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. We could just pull over and park there, right? Peter, the apostle, is admitting that there are some things that are difficult to understand that Paul wrote down, whether it's end time stuff or sanctification stuff or whatever. Peter's going, listen, I was just a fisherman, right? And here Paul comes along and writes some things and they're hard to understand. And he's basically saying that uh, it creates a vulnerability where ignorant and unstable people, false teachers, will twist uh, the scripture to their own destruction. But listen, at the end in verse 16 of 2 Peter 3, he says that Paul's writings are 
others are equated with other script, scriptures. So the ignorant and unstable twist the word of God to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. And so Paul is in the club as a writer of graphe, of a writer of scripture. One other place just um, to solidify this in our own minds. It's important. First Timothy 6, um, 18. I want to show you this. Um, chapter 5, rather, verse 18, 1 Timothy for the scripture, this is Paul to Timothy earlier on, for the scripture, the graphe says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. What's Paul doing here? Paul is saying that, Paul is basically quoting Deuteronomy 25 at first, saying the muzzle, um, thou shalt not muzzle, muzzle an ox. He's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 25 verse 4 and then the second half of verse 18 is where he's quoting Luke chapter 10 verse 7 which is the teachings of Christ the laborer deserves his wages and so what we have here in 1st Timothy 6 or 5 18 is three sections of scripture that are authoritative the first being Deuteronomy 25 verse 4 that quote put right alongside the teachings of Christ in Luke 10, 7. And we know from Peter's affirmation of Paul's writings that 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 18 is scripture. So all three sections of scripture are firing at the same time, showing that this whole corpus, this whole counsel of God is God's very word. It's scripture. It's breathed out by God. I, I love that metaphor. I got to come back to 1 Timothy 16. It's God breathed. Um, some of your translations call it inspired. Perhaps a better term instead of inspiration would be expiration or exhaling. It's the idea that when you speak, whether you realize this or not, you are exhaling breath with every word that you say. Do you realize that? You're, you're exhaling, you're expiring. And when God spoke his word, he was breathing out words with his breath. It was a creative dimension that happened when this word was created. Over centuries, through many authors, in many settings, in a variety of ways, authors were writing down the word of God and God was creating it through them. Now, the authors aren't mentioned here in verse 16 of 2 Timothy. They're not mentioned. And so I think as an argument from silence, you can realize that the authors themselves, they were not inspired. We're not talking about Shakespearean inspiration here. They weren't inspired. There's nothing about them that's at the forefront here. They're not mentioned at all. We're not really talking about the theory of, of man and their participation as God breathed words through them we're gonna we'll look at that in a second but here what we're talking about is that these words were breathed out by the living God that's what you possess in the scripture and I want you to realize how significant a book you have it is a one-of-a-kind book that gives you the mind of Christ to make it through each day with it's the word of God. It's the imperishable seed that transforms people's lives. It was the word of God that God used instrumentally to save you with. 
It's the word of God. It's a book to be reverenced. It's a book to be respected, not just superficially or religiously, but in your heart, realizing that this is the breath of God. Anytime the metaphor breath of God is used, it's talking about the presence of God. God was presently involved when this word was created. It's, it's God-breathed. It's theonoustos. It's a compound word talking about God's breath or God's presence, God's spirit, scripture. I want to point something out real quick. Let's just look over at 2 Peter. 2 Peter is the clearest explanation of how scripture came into being and how God used people. Again, um, it wasn't mechanical. It wasn't something where people go into some sort of um, existential trance and God was speaking through them in spite of them. And it's not some mechanical robotic formula. Um, prophecy and scripture came about through people and personalities as they wrote to certain circumstances in a variety of contexts. And as you know, as you look at the 66 books of the Bible, they're multi-genre. I mean, you have history, you have prophecy, you have law, you have poetry, you have wisdom, you have narrative, you have stories, you have didactic teaching, you have letters, which are epistles, and you have apocalyptic literature, like the book of Revelation. Well, how did this all come about? Look at 2 Peter 1, verse 20. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone, someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Literally, the picture here of being carried along is like wind filling the sails of a sailing ship, being moved along, and so people through their personality, through their prophetic moments of giving the word of God, whether speaking or writing it as scripture, God was moving along in their hearts, creating the word of God. So here's the question. This is what I've already said once, but it's a quote from a pastor, William Evans, and this is the big idea of the sermon. Will you take God's word for what it really claims to be? Will you believe that this is an inspired book? And this is what the preacher said. Either all of the Bible is God-breathed or it is not. Either all of the Bible is profitable or it is not. Either all of the scripture will equip you or it will not. So you've got to take it all as God's word or just set it aside. It's either worth your time it's worth your study, it's worth your diligence, or it's not. And the Bible itself claims that it is. Let me ask you this question in terms of inspiration. Or actually, let me share this story. I asked my dad when I was a little kid. Uh, I was probably, I don't know, 9, 10. And I had the Bible, I think, in front of me. And I was reading it and thinking about it. My dad's no Bible scholar or teacher. He's not really had any formal training. And I just said, hey, why do we believe that this book is God's word? It's a pretty serious question. You know, it's one of 200, 300 scenarios that sort of is emblazoned in your memory. You know, there's a lot of life that happens to you. And then there's those moments where you remember that conversation. This is one of those. I said, why is the Bible God's word? Or how do we know that? And my dad, in a very sort of profound but simple way said God's word is you know God's word is God's word because when you read it you know it's God's word 
That's what he said. You know, the Bible is God's word because when you read it, you know that it's God's word. It seemed pretty simple, but it was actually a direct hit because what my dad, whether he knew it or not, was espousing was a teaching from Scripture that the reformers in the you know, 16th century were claiming, and that is um, the testimonium of the Holy Spirit. In Latin, it's the testimonium of the Spiritus Sancti. And it was what Martin Luther and John Calvin um, promoted, and that is simply this, that as you read the Scripture, the Holy Spirit impresses upon you in your heart that it's true. You know that the Bible is true because the Holy Spirit affirms it as truth in your heart. It's where the scales fall off. It's like being saved and you read the word of God and the word of God is life to you because it's revealing Christ to you. John Calvin put it this way. He said that as you read the word of God, you are seeing or encountering the majesty of Christ in the scripture. Have you had that experience? Do you believe that Jesus is revealed to you through Scripture? Well, as you read Scripture and the authority of God's Word is impressed upon your heart as true by the Holy Spirit, then you know it's the Word of God. It's called the self-attestation of Scripture. The Scripture says it is the authoritative Word of God, and you know that to be true because the Holy Spirit seals that truth on your heart. It's illumination. It's what all of the Reformation turned on it was where the word of God actually went out of you know the Roman Catholic Church where you had Roman Catholic priests who were um, holding the scripture close to themselves and they were they were reading it in Latin and they were describing what the Bible said to the commoners but the commoners didn't actually possess the scripture in their own language and so Martin Luther translating the word of God from Latin to German, at that point, put the scripture in the plowman's hands to where they could say, I believe the scripture. I understand the scripture. The scripture's mine, and God is talking directly to me from scripture. That's our experience. That's why First John talks about how we really don't need anyone to teach us at a certain level because the word of God is a possession that is near and dear to our own souls and our own hearts. Listen, your whole spiritual life will rise and fall on whether or not you have a conviction that this is the word of God. How you treat your family, how you live your life, how you commune with God, how you trust God or don't, it all turns on your conviction that the scripture is the truth. That's it. It's the word of God. So um, I'm over time, but I gotta go there. Verse 16, I wanna talk about we are believing the scripture is sufficient to save, it's sufficient to transform. And then finally, um, the second half of verse 16, it transforms us with a fourfold dynamic. This is what John Stott actually called the two pairs of negatives and positive. How positives, how the word of God will transform your life. And let me tell you this, this transformational process is the only way that you will experience permanent change in your life. Because the Bible is a potent, powerful scalpel that goes into your soul and it can scalpel out bad stuff that needs to go away from your life and it can put in the replacement, cementing convictions and life change that will change your life, even in permanent ways. It'll make you 
a stronger Christian, and it'll make you an effective person as a minister of the word. Look at verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. It's God's word, and scripture changes lives. The two things Paul is saying here is it's inspired, it's breathed out, and it is profitable. How is it profitable? It's profitable with a fourfold dynamic. Look at this. First of all, the word of God builds up. It's profitable for teaching. It's by no mistake that Paul begins with teaching. He's, he's basically saying that when you want to be an effective minister of the word of God, you have to teach it. It's worth teaching. It's worth going to a Bible study and learning. The word of God, you got to set it out there as a standard for change. So you teach with it. Second, it builds up and then secondly, it breaks down. Look, this isn't cold, lifeless doctrine. What we're talking about with the word of God is that the word of God, it, it builds you up and then it rebukes you. I don't want you to raise your hand north to south or east to west right now, but have you been rebuked? I mean, anytime you come in contact with the living, active word of God, there should be a rebuke that happens in your heart where you say, oh, okay, the standard's been set and I'm not catching it. I mean, it's convicting for me to think about Lois and Eunice and the investment they made in Timothy's life. And I got six snivelly-nosed kids running around my house and they all need to be shepherded in the word of God. And I have, at levels, failed egregiously from doing that. And we all feel that way. I mean, I, I do it. I give the word of God. I pray with my kids. I am that person, but it's not enough. And I want to do it more. And so the word of God rebukes me, okay? So it, it builds me up, then it breaks me down. And then thirdly, for proof for correction. The word correction here is to straighten. The, the word of God, I think a lot of times we give it a bad rap because we understand what we're dealing with. This is a significant power tool. It talks about the holiness of God. It makes us shrink back from it sometimes, doesn't it? Like, I don't even want to read it sometimes because it's going to rebuke me. It's going to tell me how holy God is. It's going to show me my sin. And we look at the Bible negatively sometimes, but I want you to look at it positively. It actually, it can rebuke you, but then it will straighten you out. Literally, it will lift you up and put you back up on your feet again. So that's the third part of this fourfold dynamic. And then fourthly, it strengthens you for the long haul. And for training in righteousness. This is like father to child training. That's the metaphor and picture of these words. Literally, the word of God, Paul's saying, Timothy, look, you're my son in the faith. You're my dearest friend in the whole world. I'm getting ready to die, but I leave for you the word of God, which will train you in righteousness. It'll make you who you need to be. And listen, if you want people to change that are around your life, you've got to give them the word of God. It will, it will build people up. It'll break people down. It'll, it'll deconstruct and then it'll reconstruct. It'll deconstruct and then it will reform for life change. It's the fourfold dynamic. It's always happening with the word of God. Now, last point. It's you gotta believe scripture is sufficient to save, sufficient to transform, and then believing scripture is sufficient to equip. I'll just touch on this. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The word man of God, that title, is a title that's used of significant people in the Old Testament. It's used of Moses, it's used of Elijah, it's used of David, and then in the New Testament, it's used of Timothy. Paul calls Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, you man of God. Do you want to be a man of God? The scripture actually is pretty open here. It's not just talking about the office of pastor being the man of God. We're not talking about somebody as 
who is God's man. You know, it's God's man. That's not what we're talking about here. That's not what the Bible does with people. Um, the Bible is talking about you as a Christian, if you want to be used of God in a significant way, you've got to dig deep into the scripture and believe it by conviction that this is the inspired, inerrant, powerful word of God that can affect life change in a fourfold dynamic. That's, that's what it means to be a man of God, or let me just broaden it, or a woman of God. For you to be useful in the ministry, profitable in the ministry. You got to dig deep in scripture, know it and believe it for what it claims to be. That the man of God may be complete and equipped. That's a, actually a double use of the same word. It's you, you have been equipped, you've been invested in with the word of God and you are equipped with the word of God. So you are equipped because you have been equipped is literally what the language is saying there. It's you are totally equipped. The word is sufficient as a sword in your scabbard. You are armed for the battle, for the fight. Listen, as I have thought through the highs and lows of my life and the sine wave of the ups and downs, I can come back to one thing. The Bible will straighten out my situation, how I think about my situation, how I think about my life, how I try to answer uh, a seemingly unanswerable question. The word of God is there for me. Let me conclude with this little story. You know, I've referenced the Reformation. I read a book recently. It was a biography of Martin Luther. And I, you know, I don't know what everybody believes about Martin Luther and the Reformation and what happened with Protestantism and evangelicalism versus uh, the Roman Catholic Church. But uh, you just need to know something. Martin Luther was an Augustinian monk in a dark cell with a candle reading the word of God as a young man. And because his mind and heart opened up to the scripture and the gospel, he began to preach, write, study, and take stands that influenced the whole known world in the 16th century, which is a very inaccessible world at that time. I mean, it's the dark ages. This is not the times of internet, cell phone, satellite, and TV. This is just written word going out and spoken to different people that influenced the whole world, and the world was never the same after the leadership influence of Martin Luther. Just a guy, just a sinful man. But what, what do you trace his influence back to? I want to show you. It was his conviction that the Bible is inspired. This is what he said when he was asked about his mounting success in the Reformation. Here's his response. He said, I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept... The word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor even inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. He talked about his preaching ministry and he was speaking as if for God. He said, when the word of Christ is preached, he's speaking as if for God. He said, I am in your mouth and I go with the word through your ears into your heart. Listen, you know, some of you probably have picked up on a newspaper blog um, person who wrote in the Anchorage Daily News about our church recently. He's written several negative articles critiquing us. You know, I've got nothing against the, the blogger, and there's some good critique there, but um, the natural man doesn't understand the things of the Spirit of God. And I've preached the Bible to you this morning about the Bible. And the church is built on a spiritual book, 
and a powerful book. And this is what matters, that we open the scripture here. And we're always going to open the scripture here in word ministry. And this is the key to persevering, is being faithful to the scripture. So will you take the challenge with me and believe that this book is God-breathed? If you do, it'll change your life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word.